Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Josh Marshall podcast. You know, we have a genuine international crisis on our hands. Um, and that that word, I mean, I guess international, maybe there's some dispute there. Is it a European crisis or a North Atlantic crisis or something like that? But but Russia is one of the two major uh, nuclear powers, uh, well, I guess three major nuclear powers in the world. So it's a, it's a, it's a global crisis, you know, and that, and that that phrase gets thrown around kind of promiscuously. Um, I think the last the last one we had that was that was genuinely in that category uh, was possibly the annexation of Crimea in 2014. But really, you have to go back to uh, 2002 and 2003 with the lead up to the um, the Iraq War. Um, that was a big global crisis, and it and it it was drawn out, and it pulled in the UN Security Council and all this kind of stuff. And you know, we we <laughs> the US wasn't necessarily on the right side of that to put it to put it politely or put it charitably. Um, but this is real. It's not quite the July crisis, which is which is the the term that historians use about the the lead up to World War One. Sort of the the there was a period of God, I'm, I'm I'm spacing now, but I think it was I think it was roughly six weeks between the assassination of uh, uh, the Archduke in Sarajevo and the actual commencing of hostilities in in, in World War One. But this one's big, and it has the has this character that we have seen that we saw in the 2014 2015 crisis, where you know they call it information warfare and all these kind of names, but but it's basically mind games play a big part in it. And one of the one of the dimensions to this one is that, you know, the the Russians and their proxies running these little kind of puppet states in the in the eastern part of Ukraine, you know, they they're putting out these things that that Ukraine is is, you know, shelling their civilians and there's terrorist attacks and uh, there's going to be a genocide of ethnic Russians. Now, you know, we should be we should always be skeptical of what we hear from any sources from foreign governments we don't like from our own government. Uh, But the idea that uh, Russia has between 150 and 200,000 troops marshaled along the borders of Ukraine and Ukraine is going to start attacking them when when Russia has overwhelming military support uh, um, 
a superiority over Ukraine. I mean, the whole thing is 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 absurd. And one thing we have seen in this crisis is that the U.S. is is getting into this game too, but in a different kind of way. The U.S. was really kind of caught flat-footed um, by what happened in 2014, 2015, again in 2016 in the U.S. election. Now, it's not that the U.S. doesn't have a long history of its own psychological warfare and information warfare and stuff like that, but this was a, a kind of a, a, a new uh, digital, I don't know, it, there's a uh, there's a phrase I can't remember uh, in the, in in Russian military thinking they have about this, which is basically you set aside uh, conventional warfare doesn't isn't isn't the only thing you do a lot of information warfare and a lot of deception and blah 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 blah. In any case, what the U.S. has been doing here is using something it has a lot of, which is intelligence, satellite imagery, signals intelligence, all sorts you know human intelligence, and has been basically disclosing what the Russians are planning to do or thinking about doing in advance and kind of getting a jump on them, right? If you're, if you're kind of trying to act by surprise and the other side keeps letting out your secrets, that sort of throws you off. And, and, and um, one thing I think the U.S. has done pretty well over the last month has been that everything has been previewed, you know, the false flag attacks, the the you know the sort of the the incidents that are going to be the provocation that justifies um, a, a Russian invasion, and so now when that all seems to be happening, everybody's been prepped for it. It's totally out in the out in the open. Now it's not that people who follow this stuff closely might not have kind of you know anticipated this and know how these kind of games run and everything. Uh, but there is a there is a knocking everybody off balance, keeping them kind of questioning what's actually happening, what's not happening. That the U.S. is the U.S. has gotten onto that territory itself, and largely, I think, by by saying real information. Now, I always uh, I always get into you know conversations with readers like, well, real information. How do you know the U.S. is telling the truth about all this stuff? Well, I think a few ways, and in general, I don't take it for granted that 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 what the U.S. government says is true. But another dimension of this crisis has been that a lot of the key information is available from open source information. You don't have to be a great power nowadays to have satellite imagery. There's lots of commercial satellite companies. You just buy the stuff, right? And so you can see what's happening with these troop movements and stuff like that. And there's a whole a whole world of what they call open source intelligence people who who operate on social media who basically are pulling together TikTok videos and things on Twitter. And there are ways to verify these things. And they've actually, you know, you can say, well, Josh, wh what do you mean? You, what you see on TikTok that you're going to you're going to assume that's true. Well, these people, the ones who are good at it and have good reputations, they have ways of confirming stuff seeing where a particular video was taken and lining it up with stuff. And you bring in experts on different kinds of military equipment and say, well, this is that kind of tank and stuff like that. So, so a lot of this is confirmable by non-governmental entities. Now, as I'm sure you've noticed, um, and one thing I was kind of interested to see is that you don't have to be politics obsessed to be focusing on this. The, the whole people in the United States are really 
plugged into this and concerned as 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 they should be. You've probably seen over the last seventy two hours that uh, Vladimir Putin gave this very incendiary speech in which he laid out his sort of full list of of grievances about what has happened to Russia after the Cold War, essentially argued that there is no Ukraine. Ukraine is is just part of Russia. It's part of greater Russia. The fact that it exists as an independent state has to do with sort of random decisions that Soviet leaders made hundred years ago and subsequent, you know, in the, in the, in the, over the course of the history of the Soviet Union and how the, uh, the Cold War ended and the breakup of the Soviet, Soviet Union. So this is a fake country as far as he's concerned. It's long been known that he thinks this, but he said it publicly and in a very aggressive way and sort of made clear that NATO is not the main issue here, at least with this. The main issue is that Ukraine's part of Russia. And that's the issue. And and NATO is only an issue to the extent that it might further pull Ukraine, which is part of Russia, away from Russia. So he said this, and then he went ahead and had the Russian Duma formally recognize these puppet statelets, these two kind of little, you know, so-called republics in the, on the uh, basically on the border of Ukraine and Russia, but on the Ukraine side recognize them and then so basically carving up parts of parts of Ukraine and then acceding to their invitation to call to bring in Russian peacekeepers i.e to be occupied by Russia now there's a little information um, there's a little information out today that it's not completely clear how many troops actually went into these places um, and Russian troops have been operating there more or less openly since 2014, 2015. Now, is this the whole thing? Is there about to be a, you know, a full-scale invasion? People are right when they say this is an invasion. You've got you've got them declaring that that Ukraine is, has been broken up and they're sending their troops in there, but a kinetic invasion where they're actually fighting the Ukrainian army. Is that still going to happen? Now, one one school of thought here is that these statelets, these two statelets, have a certain amount of territory they control, but more than twice as much more that they say is theirs, but is still controlled by the Ukrainian central government. So one way you could see this playing out is these uh, puppet statelets say, hey, Ukraine's occupying our territory. Hey, Russia, can you help us get our territory back? So basically, a further invasion is is sort of dressed up as 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 defensive in in some way. But there's another way to look at this, and I'm not really sure which is more accurate, and I'm not even sure the people in Moscow know which is more accurate. Sometimes you let things play out and see where you know see where your best move is. But that's this for the last uh, God, it's going on like a month now or so. We've been in this situation where. Russia has been faced, has put itself in this position, but has been faced uh, with an increasingly binary choice, which is to actually invade after you put 100 and then 150,000, now supposedly upwards of 200,000 troops on Ukraine's border, or after all that threatening and not getting any concessions from Ukraine or NATO or the United States that you just say, okay, never mind, which is in the ways that great powers work, a humiliation. And humiliation and domination are the languages that Vladimir Putin speaks. 
So why not just invade? Uh, you know, the Russian army can greatly overmatch the army of Ukraine. So why not? Well, there's all the sanctions you might get from the US and NATO f- to start with, but you could also have an insurgency that kind of really bleeds Russia over time. You know, they have the recollection of, of Afghanistan, which arguably was a key thing that, that um, brought down the Soviet Union. So another way to look at this is to see it as kind of an off-ramp for Russia to basically say, you know, okay, an inv- a full invasion is just is too costly, but we'll lop off these, these two areas, um, jump up and down and, and, and threaten, and then say, okay, we, we did what we want. We're going to keep our soldiers there, but, but you, you give yourself a third option. And I still kind of think it is that that thing that is that is happening. So we're going to talk about that um, and try to figure out what is going on. And we're going to talk about a few other topics. Before we get to that, let me um, let you know that we're going to be introducing a new occasional feature on the Josh Marshall podcast, and that's called a Josh Marshall podcast extra. And these are going to be extra episodes that, you know, the alternative title was basically kind of random things that Josh might be interested in. And these are going to be shows that are not, you know, not the sort of the the wrap ups of the week in politics that Kate and I uh, usually do, but just you know, interviews with people who I think might be interesting to interview or, or you know, topics to discuss. And uh, Kate might have topics that she wants to do as well. And at least the first one we did, I just did solo. And what it was is I did an interview with this guy named Jamie Jeffers and his uh, producer who goes by the name Z. In any case, this is a history podcast that I really love. It's called the British History Podcast. I am super into it. And as those of you who know my background know, I have a, a history background before I got into journalism. So I'm very interested in public history, history that is not just you know, locked away for specialists, but narrative history that people who are interested in the past can enjoy. So anyway, I am very into this podcast. It's so, so good. It's 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 a great mixture of both very sophisticated, but also just great engaging narratives. I mean, I'm totally hooked. I've learned a lot from it. So I did an interview with with those two and we talk about their podcast and history podcasting and history and a bunch of stuff. I think that I think that episode is going to is going to show up in your feed on Friday. Um, I'm not sure that exact day is uh, is locked in, but that's it's probably then. And if not, uh, you know, a day later or something like that. And I just wanted to let you know that it's coming. So you don't so you don't see it and say, like, whoa, what happened to Kate? (laughs) <laughs> did Josh like, did, did something happen here or something like that? Or they radically changed the format. Uh, so that'll probably, you probably see that in a couple of days. Now, before we get down to the rest of, uh, rest of the episode, uh, after my lengthy monologue, if you've got to return to the office, you may as well come back strong. But now that your daily commute is back, you can't afford to waste time taking everyone's custom coffee order. Grady's cold brew makes it easy to please everyone at the office. Even the Vigo, Vigo God, what's wrong with me today? <laughs> Even the vegan keto bodybuilder in sales. Their bean bags are simple to brew. Just add them to a container of cold water and let them steep in the office fridge overnight. Stock your break room with sweeteners, syrups, and alt milks and let everyone be their own barista. Order a bean bag box to get 72 servings of subtly sweet cold brew for $60. That's a price even accounting will love. Ready to give it a try? Get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Okay, Kate Riga, what are we, what are we talking about? 
So I think you you set the scene well, Josh, with what's been going on on kind of the Russia side of things. And then on the United States side of things, on Monday is when you kind of had Putin mobilizing the troops to go into these breakaway regions. And then Biden addressed the nation and said that he was basically putting like starter sanctions on Russia, not you know, kind of exerting the full scope of economic pain that the United States could inflict, but kind of like the first level of those, which basically targeted, you know, cutting Russia off from Western financing, you know, clearly kind of an effort to go at the oligarchs that surround Putin to try to make them financially hurt. So they might, you know, kind of turn their support against him um, with the promise that the sanctions would get worse if the invasion intensifies. Um, then you had some some U- EU member nations saying, you know, us too, we will also put on sanctions and Germany in particular, kind of putting the pause on this big pipeline project that uh, Russia is doing um, and is really invested in. And so you kind of, you have, that's the stage where we're at now. And then we're in this very tense moment where, you know, we still have 150,000 Russian troops massed on Ukrainian borders that everyone's waiting to see, you know, what what's going to happen with them? Is Putin going to send them kind of flooding in? What's the next step there? So that's kind of the state of where we're in. And then, of course, you've got all the, the party's responses to, you know, both Putin and how Biden has responded. And I think that one of the most interesting parts of how this has played out is the way that it's really just rent the Republican Party. Like Republicans are truly all over the map in response to this. And it generally kind of into two buckets, one of which you have the more old school kind of hawkish Republican who's like, these ancients aren't enough. You know, we should go full bore right away kind of thing. And then you have the Trumpist Republicans, the newer generation of Republicans who are going so far as to say Putin's right, America's wrong, you know, and it, it's funny because I just wrote up a piece that our listeners can find on the website, but kind of organizing all the various arguments this far right contingent has used in defense of Putin. And it really does range from he's a he's a strategic mastermind. I just freaking love him to different reasons why Ukrainians are undeserving of any kind of protection that, you know, they're the true villain to, you know, then you kind of go off the map into, and what if this is all a hoax covering up for a Hillary Clinton scandal? That's pretty impossible to decipher if you're not on a steady diet of Fox News conspiracy theories. You know, there was a little boomlet on Fox, uh, maybe late last week, I don't know, something like that. And it was basically that that Biden was was creating this crisis to distract from the Durham news that was coming down the pike after that whole, you know, that whole thing where he had a he had a legal filing that's God, it's hard to hard to capture these things. Basically had some vague and amorphous claims about sort of about a Clinton campaign spying on on Trump. He didn't really say that, but he seemed to say it in a way, say what he did say in a way that like Fox News would definitely say, oh, this is really, you know, all this kind of. So so it, it, it's funny that you have, um, I mean, there's two things about that. One is that I think the I think the, for lack of a better word, the conventional Republicans have been relatively muted because 
I think they recognize that Biden is doing a pretty good job of this here. Now, that doesn't mean there's not going to be an invasion. Um, and if they're, you know, they will be criticizing every possible thing they can criticize. But one of the big things about how this crisis has has unfolded so far is that the NATO member states are, are in very tight alignment over this. Um, and to, you know, to the extent that there are, are, you know, you have the EU, you have NATO, you have other European states, these mostly overlap, but they don't completely overlap. And everybody basically on the NATO, you know, EU, you know, Europe side of things has been pretty tightly united. And I think if you talk to most observers, they agree that the Biden administration has gotten a bit of a jump on Russia by how what I mentioned in the monologue, their use of a kind of information warfare to sort of uh, wrong foot the Russians by continually saying what they're about to do. Or, and this is another thing I think we've seen in in this crisis, the United States has been playing up the chances of an invasion, I think in large part because an invasion is really likely. You, you know, you mobilize almost 200,000 troops on a country's borders. What do you think is going to happen? But they've also created this situation where they have made it not just a looming threat that Russia uses to hang over Ukraine, but almost kind of like a promise they need to follow through on or not, right? And to kind of like all right, they're going to invade, they're going to invade. And you've got Russia saying, oh, you're trying to make us invade. You know, just the, they're, you know, kind of getting them, getting them wound up. In any case, so far, I think most people recognize that Biden has, has played a, a, a complicated hand pretty well. And I think that that has kept the conventional Republican criticism somewhat muted. And then obviously, you've got the rest of the Trump Republican Party, which, as you say, is like pro-Putin. They're just, you know, but here's the thing I think that everybody really needs to, to keep in mind through all of this. And part of, you know, part of this is pro-Trump Republicans are just still burned about impeachment and, you know, the Russia hoax and all this kind of stuff. So, so they're they're always going to be taking sort of the pro-Russian side just for these situational U.S. politics reasons. But beyond that, this whole drama is really part of the larger conflict, which is the conflict, the global drama of this era, which is the battle between civic democracies and authoritarianism. So it's not just that kind of like, oh, Trump seems to have some kind of bromance with Putin. So I, we love Putin too. Putin represents a kind of strong man rule. So it all kind of fits together. And, and, and um, you know, we know this at some level, but it's no accident that Ukraine keeps coming back to the center of our, of our domestic politics in this country. We had an impeachment over it, the, the Russia scandal was always deeply tied up with Ukraine, right? It was it was just inextricably tied uh, to Ukraine. And now you've got this. So it, it is part of this larger drama that, that Trump and Putin and this dispute over Ukrainian nationality, they're all tied up together. It's all part of one bigger story. 
Yeah, I think a couple things. One, you mentioned how kind of NATO, EU, there's been a pretty impressive display of, I think, lockstep from, you know, those groups and also the United States. Everyone is very much seems on the same page. And I do think that's a direct benefit of the kind of information tactic the Biden administration is using, which is like by getting this using all the considerable intelligence and getting out everything they know kind of into the public sphere, I think it's made it a lot easier for all of these countries to kind of get their get their ducks in a row, you know, instead of having just a purely few days after reactionary response to what Putin does, it's much more kind of a, you know, here's what we're going to do if you invade. He starts the invasion. Here are the sanctions we promised, you know, and they're all kind of on the same level and exerting the same amount of force. And I think that is a big benefit of the kind of transparency that the Biden administration has opted for. My quibble with the Biden administration's communications here is we heard this a lot yesterday and kind of the day before when Biden started talking sanctions and everything, which is there's been this real fronting of the potential knock-on effects on gas prices here in the United States. And obviously, that's not something they're making up. You know, there's uh, Ukraine and Russia have control of oil fields and all of that. And it's a, you know, a real possibility, possible consequence. My issue with it is just, I sometimes think that this White House is operating under the mantra of we will be as honest as possible with the American people, no matter the political cost. And I think that's noble and in some ways pretty healthy after Trump. But in this case, it's you're taking an issue that I think a lot of Americans don't really care about because the American stake in it is not super evident. It seems to be kind of a skirmish that doesn't really involve us that much. And Biden already said, you know, we're not going to have troops on the ground. So I think that is a point at which most Americans are kind of like, you know, not my circus, not my monkeys. But by opening with this possibility, which we're not even sure is going to happen yet, of potential gas pain, that just seems like it gives people a personal stake to oppose what the Biden administration is doing on top of the fact that I think a lot of people might not even really understand why America is getting involved at all. And that's my concern. And Biden has fronted that. Kamala Harris put out a statement where the gas thing was front and center. And it's just kind of, to me, I get it. Like they don't want to be reactionary, but look at the the kind of ecosystem they're working within, right? There are just so few channels for Democrats to get a positive message out about what they're doing. And Republicans have so many that it seems to me just a waste of that channel to kind of front a potential not yet happened negative consequence of what they're doing with Russia, Ukraine, on top of the fact that gas prices in actuality fluctuate a lot of the time and Americans usually don't notice unless it's some precipitous change from what it was before. Well, yeah, I mean, I I, I think what they're trying to do is they don't want I mean, this may really happen. And, and it's not just that that may happen. I mean, you could potentially have a situation where there are not just, and, and, and here we're talking about natural gas, not, not gas in your car, but where they could have real disruptions of, of supply in Europe, because I think it's something like 40% of the natural gas that, that is consumed in Europe comes from Russia. Um, so they can play hardball with that too. And that can have, that can have all sorts of you know, economic shock Situ- situation. So, to some extent, they just they want they want to be saying like, "Hey, 
this could happen. Don't, don't, if it does happen, don't think we weren't paying attention. We know, can you know, so they're, they're, I understand why they're, um, why they're trying to do that. I mean, you could have some uh, real economic shocks from this and you could also have things, I mean, I haven't just logically given supply chains, you know, th- there's one of the things we have learned during the pandemic is the early 20th century economic and state system is pretty brittle, right? It's not, it's not very resilient. You can have just some breakdowns and it kind of ramifies across the whole world. But I take your point. I mean, you know, they are, this is a tough situation, right? And, and there's also, I mean, the one thing that I have not seen a lot of discussion of, but which seems very, you know, not at all unlikely is cyber attacks in the U.S. You know, if the U.S., the U.S. has it in its power to really, really damage the Russian economy if it wants to. Now, economic, you know, that's basically economic warfare. And countries don't know, always react well to economic warfare. And, you know, Russians, I mean, you know, knock wood, they're not going to nuke us in response. Um, but they're going to want to do something. And that's something they're good at. Right. So you can have like disruptions. There's a lot of stuff that can, you know, th- that can happen here. That's why this is like a really serious crisis. I mean, one thing, one thing, let me say one thing about this, that, that you mentioned before they had these, you know, this, this kind of first round of sanctions. And there's been criticism from some parties like, oh, you know, you're talking a big game and now there's only these kind of mess sanctions. I, I don't think that's right. There's a post dated this morning that kind of exp- explains why. Um, but one of the things here, one, one of the dynamics here is that Russia has been looking for ways to kind of halfway do things, right? I mean, I do think if there is, if 100,000 troops roll from the east into Ukraine, I think that the Biden administration and, the, and NATO and the EU and all the different players here are going to do really draconian sanctions, and so part of what Putin here was trying to do was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to get a win here and kind of like show you that I mean business, but it's not quite going to be enough that you're probably going to feel like it's like you can really do the big sanctions because it, it'll, it'll seem, you know, kind of out of whack, out of proportion. And also you want to hold something back. So there's this kind of, you know, back to the mind games, right? There's, there's this effort to, um, you know, there's that same uh, game playing of, you know, it's almost like, you know, kind of Zeno's aggression, you know, Zeno's paradox thing, if you keep going halfway, you never get there kind of thing. Um, but that's another dimension of this. And that, that's, that's, you, you've got two very powerful players here, and they both have a lot on the line. Neither wants to be labeled as the side that lost. So there's a lot of like, maneuvering to find the sweet spot where you can say you got say you got what you wanted that you came out if not on top at least not on the bottom but without taking too many risks and and again that kind of feels to me what uh what Putin was doing here as kind of an off ramp i mean maybe by the end of this episode he'll he'll that invasion will have started and 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 that'll be wrong but that's my that's my hunch if he wanted to invade he could have invaded already i mean here's my thing it's not that they're could not be serious knock-on effects from the invasion of the United States. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I don't see the political upside in planting those seeds now when the situation is still extremely fluid. And we really don't know 
kind of how hard Putin's going to go. And just just aside from that, I don't, it's like, I feel that sometimes the administration tries so much to be honest and transparent that it results in a, a very muddied message because they're trying to say too too much stuff at once because realities are complicated and nuanced. But it's, I just think we don't know, you know, we don't know. And if it is going to exert pain on the on gas prices here, that's something that they're going to have to deal with. And I think in the meantime, I'm, I don't think they should avoid it. I think if they get questions on it, they should say, we're working with, you know, whatever gas producers in the United States to make sure prices stay stable, that kind of thing. But I think it risks the story becoming you Americans are going to suffer because the Biden administration is getting us involved with something that's not our business. It's far away. Who knows what's really going on when instead I feel like the thrust should be, you know, dress it up in the old American freedom, liberty stuff. That's what we stand for. We're not going to let Russian just run rampant on an innocent country. That's our job. That's what we do is like make that more painful for him and just kind of lead with that thrust instead of the, okay, well, the, you know, there might be knock-on effects and here's what they might be and you're not going to like them and there is a midterm coming up, but, you know, it's, it's something we had to do. <laughs> yeah, I guess to me, I, I, I see this as they're trying to inoculate themselves. That that if, you know, um, in the spring, there's like a huge or, you know, whatever point, there is some disruptions either of natural gas or car gas or, you know, all these kind of things that they'll be able to say, hey, we told you this was, this you know, this wasn't us. This we told you this Russia thing might cause this. So just you know, not our fault. Kind of you know, kind of thing. You, you sort of um, you create a storyline that is this isn't our you know mismanagement of the economy or Biden inflation or whatever the Republicans say. This is this is a cost we're paying because we're badass and we stopped Russia from annexing Ukraine. Right now, a lot of people probably like hey. So why'd you, you know, so why'd you get into that and, and make our, you know, cause these economic problems? But I, th I, I think that's, I think that's why they're doing it. And that, that does make sense to me. I think that, I think that that is even in, even in political terms, um, I think there's a logic to that. And I'm curious, you know, it's funny. I, I saw, I'm curious how this shakes out uh, uh, politically. I saw some polls and the, you know, the polls basically just show that regardless of what, you can ask people almost any question and they'll say, but, you know, about 42 percent of people are supporting Biden. Right. He's just unpopular. And and that's the sort of the thing. He's unpopular. So kind of like, what do you think he's you know, how do you think he's managing the potato chip crisis? Well, about 42 percent of people think he's doing a good job. You know, it's, it doesn't tell you much. But I, I'm curious to see how this shakes out over time. Obviously, what actually happens is going to, you know, is going to be a pretty decisive factor in 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 how that turns out. I mean, just just for myself, I think they I think they're doing a really good job. Now, that doesn't mean everything's going to turn out well. But I mean, this isn't a magic wand, right? There there's it's it's a very tough set of variables they're working on and how do you how do you manage that? You know, what do you what do you do with with the resources and abilities you have at your disposal to try to get, you know, to try to, you know, bring this in for a safe landing, for lack of a better word. And and 
through that, I kind of like, yeah, this is the best way to go about it. Um, so that's my sense. Not that not that my sense will be, you know, matched by the the larger American public. And you know, to a great extent, what the American public wants is to go back to like late 2019. Not necessarily with, with Donald Trump, but I mean, go back to when things were fucking normal, right? I mean, when that, when it go back to when everything didn't suck, and uh, you know, they sucked to a lot of people who listened to this podcast. Things sucked politically in 2019. I mean, remember, right before we hit the ep- uh, epidemic, we had this bizarre scandal with Trump in Ukraine, and then Trump was impeached. I mean, it was a mess. But most people's lives, which is where most people live, most people are not addicted to politics. You know, the economy is pretty decent. There was no pandemic, right? Because <laughs> everybody living their lives. People want to go back to that. So, uh, you know, through that prism global sort of military crisis, that's not going to get people pumped. They want this kind of stuff to end. I do wonder if there's more advantage to be taken here with the kind of Republicans in disarray thing, because it's it's a bit of a piece of just uh, yesterday or the day before, I can't quite remember, but Rick Scott kind of put out this like 11 point platform for the party. And it, you know, included really bonkers stuff, you know, including like, tax hikes on, you know, normal people and just draconian type things. And it's funny because that is a similar divide. Of course, we have other factors going on here, like Rick Scott's personal ambition, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, you've got him putting out this like incendiary kind of culture war loaded thing. And then you've got McConnell, who's like over in the corner, you know, trying to draw a line across his throat being like, We've got these midterms freaking locked up. Don't throw this incendiary stuff into the fire. And that is a divide that has been the Republican Party's biggest weakness since Biden took office. This idea that the only thing that can kind of lose them, particularly the midterms in this advantageous political environment, is if they let the Looney Tunes run the show. People who are so extreme and so crazy that they like turn off people who would have otherwise voted for Republicans. And that dynamic, I think, is present with this foreign policy stuff as well, where you kind of have the hawks doing a muted little, you know, Biden is weak, what you'd expect. And then you have the Tucker Carlson's being like, let's all move to Russia, Putin's the best. And, you know, that just feels like something I think Democrats could better take advantage of if they maybe kind of honed and not the I, obviously the Biden administration has a lot on their plate. Maybe this is a job for Democratic lawmakers, but there, there's clearly tension within the party there that I wonder if could be taken advantage of in a louder way. Yeah, I I, I totally agree. And I, I think that I think that for now, the Biden administration, obviously the Biden administration, you know, they 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 have a State Department and a National Security Council. They also have a press office, right? They should be able to do more, you know, kind of different things at one time. For now, their time I think is best spent managing this and and keeping it keeping it on the rails. But I do think that and and I'm not sure you manage it and you have it come off okay, then you start clobbering them. You know, that that's that's when to do it. You know, the analog here, and many of our listeners will remember it, what you're describing, what many Democrats are hoping and what a lot of Republicans are fearing, Rick Scott type stuff is gonna do, is lead to a replay of what happened in twenty ten. And in twenty ten Obama was unpopular. You had, you know, the Obamacare town halls and all that kind of stuff. Republicans were really pumped. Um, and they, you know, slaughtered the Democrats in the House. 
but they didn't take back the Senate. And basically, they didn't take back the Senate because they had a bunch of nutballs running. And so there were a number of Democrats who pulled out their races by basically running against their opponents as crazy people, even though the climate was very bad for Democrats um, overall. And, you know, uh, Ed Kilgore, old friend of ours at TPM, uh, who now writes for New York Magazine, had a piece up, I think, yesterday where he went through the stuff in that 11 point Rick Scott thing. And as Kay was saying, there's some really bonkers stuff out there, you know, in there. And again, as Kate says, you can see Mitch McConnell saying, dude, why? Why? I mean, there's a thing in there that says every federal law should be sunsetted after five years. So Social Security, Medicare, civil, everything. Now, that is not only really bad on the merits, because if Social Security is sunsetted, and sure, they'll say, well, if you like it so much, you just repass it again. That's the idea. You got to repass everything every five years. How do you think that fight's going to be with, with you know, maybe Republican House or if it's under Trump? I mean, these are disastrous kind of things. But also in political terms, you can say they are saying that Social Security and Medicare, we're getting rid of all of them in five years. If you can't do something with that politically in campaign ads, you don't. You need to look for a different line of work. And there's lots of lots of crazy stuff. I mean, you know, often there is crazy stuff that, like, you know, Kate and I and and probably you listening kind of know are crazy stuff. But it's stuff you got to get into the details to to see what the implications are. Well, if someone says they want to abolish Social Security in five years. You don't need any details. You know, almost everybody knows that's not going to be good. And the same with Medicare and everything. So, and, and as you say, you got Mitch McConnell here just saying like, let's not run on anything. Right now, the election is Joe Biden versus the world that's broken. And like, we can win that because Joe Biden can't defeat the world that's broken in, in the next seven months or however long it is, eight months, nine months, whatever. Why are you bringing something else in? Why are you making it Joe Biden against we want to abolish Social Security? And there's all this other stuff. I mean, again, this is something that I'm not sure uh, the sort of the public at large will care that much about. But they've got this thing that they're term limiting federal employees after 12 years. I mean, (laughs) I know why radical Republicans want to do that. But good Lord, federal government's a big thing. I mean, you, you there's a, you know. In the real world, you need people who work in jobs or work at the same company for more than 12 years. I mean, that's obvious. These things are really nuts. And they're just, you can see a lot of Democrats are saying, man, they just served it up to us Mm -hmm. like they just did. And, And, you know, you can see from a political perspective, the, you know, maybe they'll gang up on Rick Scott and, you know, beat him up or something like that and make him take it all back. But that's not how it works in politics. You don't have to say, well, their program is to abolish Social Security. But then uh, everybody got mad at Rick Scott and Rick Scott said, maybe we won't. So we're going to add that to our 30 second commercial. No, it's out there and it's very detailed and explicit. Um, So, you know, that that uh, that 2010 model is a you know, there's a real chance of that. And, you know, you can't gerrymander states. I mean, they've already been gerrymandered, right? But you can't gerrymander them more. You gotta. It's it's hard to uh, run a crazy person at the state level, except in Idaho or Alabama. <laughs> well, and this also comes. You know, last week we were talking about legitimate political discourse. You know, I mean, it's not even just this one kind of Rick Scott data point. It's just there is a wing of the party 
that likes this stuff. This is what riles them up. This is what they want to talk about. And Trump is a member of that. So to some degree, it's going to keep happening. And that, to me, has been the biggest boon to Democrats that I see going into the midterms. There's just an inability to kind of contain that element of the party because Republicans completely empowered it when it was Trump and he was president and, you know, reap what you sow. So I don't know. I think it's a a place for Democrats to kind of train their fire. Yeah, no. And all these things, as you say, all these things kind of come together. And I think, I think that the political, there is a chance for the Biden administration if they can keep this Ukraine situation more mm-hmm. or less on the rails, that that will add to a narrative that they're trying to build that you may not like everything they're doing. These people are experienced and they've, you know, they've thought it through and, you know, that kind of all those cliches about the adults being in charge, which, which was a key thing, I think, largely unfairly, that the Biden votes lost after the Afghanistan withdrawal, because there was a sense of like, wait, you, I thought you were the guys who kind of like, you know, kind of steady hand at the tiller and stuff, knew what you're doing. And now we're seeing, you know, kind of terrified refugees falling off the wheels of planes stuff. Again, I think that was largely a bad rap, but it is what it is. That is how it played out. Um, so there's some there are some opportunities here. Um, we'll see how it plays out uh, for for the Biden administration to win back some credibility with a a portion of the public thinking that they are, you know, knowledgeable and trustworthy. And that is a, that's a good foil against against the people who say they want, you know, Vladimir Putin to be the next president of the United States. OK, we're going to do a quick update corner on two stories that we've been tracking, you know, on the pod and on the site, one of which is, you know, the truck convoy that started in Canada that's inspired copycats here in the United States. Um, the plan of the so-called Freedom Convoy here has been to come to D.C. right around the State of the Union, which, as we know, is coming up. Um, the current iteration of the plan seems to be to block up, you know, what they call the beltway, the highways kind of encircling the city um, to disrupt the heavy flow of commuter traffic that, you know, comes in and out Uh the National Guard, there's going to be 700 to 800 troops here to kind of basically maintain traffic flow uh, in the face of that. So far, there's not really been any inkling that the convoy is planning to come into D.C. proper, which I think has been the concern based on those of us with some scar tissue from January 6th. Um, But yeah, that's where it's at now. There's been kind of some funny episodic pieces of like in in Scranton, Pennsylvania was supposed to be a pickup spot for some trucks and only one ended up coming. And, And so you've got little kind of delightful anecdotes like that. But that's kind of that's where it's at now. Yeah, I mean... I think, you know, one of the things with what happened in, in, in Ottawa, in Canada, is that they let it get a foothold before they really understood what was happening, the magnitude of what was happening. And once you've got, you know, a couple hundred trucks and a few thousand people and they're all there kind of unseating that, that's a that's a 
a tense, tough situation. But what I hope they are on top of here in Washington in the US is if you're ready for it, if someone takes their 18 wheeler out there on the beltway and just kind of, you know, arcs it to block and parks it, man, you have someone ready, you go up, arrest the guy and say, give me your keys. And we're moving this out. I mean, you you should be able to get a hold if you are ready, you should be able to shut that down pretty quickly. And I don't think there's anything I'm not thinking. I mean, yes, I mean, in theory, maybe the guy has a gun, he's going to shoot, but I doubt it. These people are not, the vast majority of them are not that brave or willing to risk that much. And to be honest with you, why, why do we have police? I mean, if, if we have people with guns trying to kind of, you know, shut down the roads, or I mean, again, why do we have police? Why do we have National Guard if not for that? So I hope, and it does sound with this like National Guard thing, that sounds like that's where they are too. Like, we're not fucking around here. <laughs> like, you know, you come in here and park your truck in the middle of the highway, we're just going to take it and impound it and and throw you in jail, which again, they should. I mean, I, I don't, I don't, there, there's been this whole weird dialogue through this that, uh, you know, a lot of it is just bad faith squawking from Republicans, but like, oh, what about civil disobedience? Well, civil disobedience is you violate what you consider to be an unjust law, and then you allow yourself to be arrested as as a way to discredit the law and discredit the authorities who enforce the law. Allowing yourself to be arrested is the whole point. That I mean, there are other forms of protest you don't have to do that kind of protest, but that's what civil disobedience is. That's what the civil thing is, right? Um, it's not. It's it's not like terrorism, where you say we're gonna we're gonna just take over your roads and shut them down, and if you try to arrest us, we're gonna you know threaten you with violence. I mean, <laughs> it's it, it's you know it it may be the sort of, you know, the defining characteristic of Trumpism, which is low educational attainment, that there's some confusion here about the difference between civil disobedience and paramilitary anti-government activism. They're not the same thing. Civil disobedience, you allow yourself to be be arrested. Right. I mean, and it's paramilitary activism with this like layer of white grievance that involves, and I should not be punished for you know, disrupting traffic or carrying around my gun or intimidating people. Like it's my God given right to do this with no negative ramifications, which is, I I don't know what, who told them that that's how things work. And the other piece of this, I think you were, you touched on that was very correct, Josh, is that January 6th kind of showed us the benefit of security theater and the idea that seeing a lot of people in uniforms with guns is a pretty strong deterrent. Um, or the lack thereof being an invitation on January 6th. So I just think the idea of having hundreds of these like, you know, national troop guys and military gear with all their stuff. I mean, it's hard to be a normal person and to be like, no, I'm not going to, I'm going to kind of break the norms and not listen to these heavily armed people and all this stuff. I'm with you. It just seems that after January 6th, it would take a while and a lot of forgetting for the city to ever kind of let a potentially dangerous demonstration come in without being very prepared again. And this is way too soon on the heels and way too kind of similar of a vein of January 6th for them not to be like, you know what, we're going to take an aggressive security posture just in case. Absolutely. I mean, there's a, as you, this, this is the whole thing about the, you know, the rap against 
security theater. The whole point of security is that you want to deter. That's not the only point. You, you can only deter if you can actually do something about it if it happens. But ideally, you want to deter. You don't want a situation where, where, you know, all your heavily armed police and National Guard are actually just like, you know, going full Rambo on dudes and like killing everybody. But you need you need to show that you are able to, you know, then that's that really is the classic, you know, I'm sure everybody will remember right after and during and right after January 6th, there was this idea that sort of, you know, kind of it was an inside job and that the Capitol Police officers were, you know, allowed it to happen or were sympathetic or were working, you know, all this kind of stuff. And there were a few cases of that and some people have been disciplined, but basically they were overwhelmed. And, and, and you know, if you are completely overwhelmed, it, it doesn't, it doesn't even make sense to try to use violence in a lot of cases because you're just going to end up killing a lot of people and probably getting killed yourself, right? You need, you need, to, you need to have enough uh, force available that you can, that it, you know, that it's, it's credible and it, and, it, and it wasn't and they were, they were just overwhelmed. There was kind of, you know, they didn't have, and, and one point I should make clear here is if you are prepared and you have sufficient force, you don't have to use deadly violence. Because again, you can control the situation. And when you can't, then you're quickly faced with really bad choices of, do we let these people come in and it's terrible, but probably it'll just, you know, some vandalism, or do we actually start like shooting people, right? It's, you get bad decisions, uh, bad options when you're overwhelmed like that. Right. Okay. And the other piece of our update corner is that we are nearing the end of February, which is President Biden's self-imposed timeline to announce a Supreme Court nominee. We will probably have that name by the time we record next. Um, He's been doing interviews, some in person. The shortlist seems to be pretty much the same as it has been the whole time. And so we'll probably get that announcement in the next few days. And then the goal of Democrats is to have her confirmed by the Easter recess, which is scheduled for April 11th. So that is proceeding apace. Yeah. Yeah. So basically in March that it's kind of get all that, get all that stuff done. Yeah. Okay. So we have a a question. We're doing one question. A question from Carl. Who says, Josh writes of Putin, the most dangerous people are often those who are isolated and aggrieved and yet have the power to mobilize great violence. And he asks, will this violence take the form of cyber attacks against the West and not just Ukraine? Where will this lead us if there are counterattacks? Uh, it's a real possibility. I think we actually talked about this earlier in the episode that um, that is that's somewhere that Russia excels at. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of inherently quasi deniable, you know. The people who kind of do this stuff for the U.S. side, and again, we do both sides of it, um, can probably know who's at fault. But it's not like a military attack or a conventional military attack where like, you know who did it. There's no question who did it. So so it's their kind of thing. And, you know, th- these are, um, th- there's a reason why we call this a crisis. Th- there are very serious tools that each side potentially has and they can escalate you know uh, pretty quickly like you know what if um the u.s really goes all out with economic sanctions and then suddenly there are cyber attacks that shut down electrical service in big chunks of the united states i mean that's a serious act of war 
Um, and then what do we do? Do we do cyber attacks back? Maybe. Um, we've kind of done all our sanctions. We're not going to get into a, a, a military. It's um, there are there are a number of bad scenarios here that could that could play out. And um, one of the many reasons that this is a very dangerous situation is that you have. I don't think Russia is one of the two most powerful countries in the world, but it's one of the country. It's it's one of the you know main mil, uh, military nuclear powers in the world, and both countries are kind of all in on this, right? Neither side is is in much of a position to back down or to say, you know, oh, you shut down and an electricity. I'm just taking that out of the air, but that's the kind of thing you have to you know you have to worry about. Um, to allow something like that and say, well, you know, we did sanctions, you did that, so I guess we're even now. I mean, it's it's dicey and it's dangerous. I think these there there is a possibility this could really kind of escalate out of control, um, and that's you know that's scary. Right. I mean, I think the big hope now is just kind of you know that that Putin didn't go full bore invasion yet, you know, and that the response with this kind of first tier of sanctions is all in the hope of providing some kind of an off ramp. You know, you did this and we respond thusly. And if you do it worse, we're going to make life absolutely suck for you. You know, so we're still in that kind of uncertain limbo between this is bad and this is a full blown crisis. Yeah. And I mean, you know, one, there've been a few articles uh, over the last 48 hours in the, in the U S press, uh, mostly feeding off reports that have come in from foreign heads of state who have met recently with Putin. And there's this idea that he has become, basically because of the COVID epi- uh, pandemic, because of the extreme secure, you know, kind of uh, infectious disease security that they have put around him, that he's basically just been kind of isolated and he's, you know, gotten... I don't know, a little loopy or isolated, a little older, um, and that he's acting a little off. Now, you always need to be very, um, very skeptical of the kind of reporting that sounds like some version of he's a madman out of control and all this kind of stuff. What he is talking about here is a he's speaking from a deep vein of thought within Russian political culture. Um, They are a great power. They were an empire. They were sort of stripped to their knees after the end of the Cold War. Um, Parts of their country have been taken away from... So this all, this doesn't come from nowhere. This is, is, um, whether it's, you know, majority belief or kind of sometimes majority, sometimes pl- this is this is a this is a very powerful thing within Russian political culture. But I think what um, the parts of this that I have seen as maybe plausible are Putin either just did or is about to turn seventy. He's been in power for something like twenty-two years. Um, he won't be in power forever, and this is a core thing for him. So, in his idea of himself and his country, this is business that that his greatness and his country's greatness would be magnified by his resolving, fixing, right? And uh, people get older; they you know, they get a little more calcified in their thinking, a little more set in their ways. Um, 
And, you know, the isolation thing, you know, maybe. Uh, but I think there are, there are, there have been little hints here and there. Like if you go back a month, if you go back six weeks, there was some reporting that kind of like a lot of the Western diplomats who were having these back and forths, they had the sense that their counterparty diplomats didn't completely agree with what Putin was doing and weren't totally sure what he was doing. Now, I'm sure our diplomats sometimes don't agree with what our government is doing. You're a diplomat. You do what your government tells you to do. That's, that's, that's the job. Um, but I think it is possible that for whatever reasons, Putin is in a place of maximalism and increasingly aggressive behavior and risk-taking behavior. And again, that's not like, oh, he's a madman. It's only him. It's not. But there's a lot of high stakes moves here. And I, you know, that's, that's, that's probably part of it. And that's not, that's not good. That's, right. that's kind of it. I think, let me, well, it's not totally it because I need to remind you that, uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's cold brew iced coffee. If you're ready to give it a try, you can get 25% off at Grady's with promo code TPM. It's Grady's with promo code TPM. And remember, uh, keep an eye out for our, uh, Josh Marshall podcast extra probably coming out later this week where I talked to the creator of one of my favorite history podcasts called the British history podcast. Again, that's probably going to drop on Friday. If not, maybe a couple days later, but keep your eyes out. And, uh, and that's it. All right. See you later. The Josh Marshall podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter, Kate Riga and TPM founder, editor in chief, Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song. And thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen. find cars like these on auto trader like that car riding right your tail or if you're tailgating right now all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on auto trader too are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time well multitasking pro cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader